dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Amlatsky, and I'm joined, as ever, by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey there, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. All righty. So it has been, it's been a week in farm country. You know, we, um, we saw, well, it's been a month, actually. Let's face it. It's just been a really tough August for everybody up and down the, the Plains coverage region. We had the derecho in, in Iowa. Bless those people's hearts. They're, they're picking up the pieces from that. Um, we, we talked about a little bit about that last week, but still we're seeing coverage of grain bins that are just demolished and, and storage is at a, is at a, a premium it or will be a premium you know going into next year i saw a video i saw a video on twitter of a grain bin that had never had a bushel of corn in it and they had to tear it down because it got damaged in the duration and and for folks that don't understand that you might be listening to this and, and thinking well a derecho is just a you know it's an inland hurricane okay folks it is a straight line hurricane winds and when you break off or bend over corn that's just about ready to harvest at the bottom of the stalk, that corn is really, I, I don't even know if those guys can get in there with special equipment, special headers and, and pick it up off the ground, or if it's going to be a total loss, what's in the field. But those bins, if they aren't structurally sound, if they get wiggled off of those pilings just a little bit, and we start filling them with with corn or grain at, at the at some point, they have a, a tendency to have catastrophic failure and they can they can actually kill people. So it's a safety stake for them if they saw that that had been um, damaged by wind just a little bit, not cosmetically, but you know it's not all cosmetic. It, it can actually be a dangerous thing to have on your on your property. So that poor farmer, the, all of those poor farmers and and I just can't imagine what they're going through and, and the questions that they have and, and the insurance, um, you know, the insurance isn't going to make them whole, right? You know, you, no. you've gone through a fire and you know what that's like with insurance. Yeah, when you don't have any <laughs> or, <laughs> well, or when, you're, when you're not the beneficiary of it. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> kind of difficult, you know, like if it was a landlord renter situation where, you know, the, the property was destroyed and the, the landlord got reimbursed for it and the the tenant didn't and it's tough it makes it hard to get back on your feet and and move forward well and we do a lot of talking about the grain guys but now livestock guys are having some problems too um we we've seen stories of the massive wildfires going on out west there was some talk that yellowstone was going to have some problems um there was some fire that was actually coming real close to old faithful and, and that plaza around the, the geyser there. But then we also had two hurricanes. I've never seen two hurricanes, uh, you know, attacking at once 
out of the Atlantic. And, and, you know, we had Hurricane Marco and Hurricane Laura. And honestly, as a side note, whoever decided that we didn't, (laughs) if you're going to name a Hurricane Marco, I realized that the naming convention after Hurricane Marco means a woman's name that starts with L. But if you have a Hurricane Marco, you are automatically obliged to name the second one Polo. Okay? I I don't understand. You know, this should have happened. You could have gotten way more coverage of people, you know, from Hurricane Marco and Hurricane Polo. But nevertheless, we have very serious situations here. Hurricane Marco and Hurricane um, Laura. Uh, we just saw that, um, before Hurricane Laura actually, uh, made landfall early this morning, Thursday, and thankfully it looks like the damage is severe as far as, um, you know, damage goes to property, but as far as agricultural damage, we kind of are okay, Kayleen. Everybody I talked to, says the the ports are still moving grain out there's no disruptions there thank god cuz we move a t- we move a lot of our of our country's corn and soybeans and wheat and sorghum out of the gulf of mexico ports yeah so if that had hit one of those port areas we could have been in a big old pickle yeah. um and well, and even without a felt a, a wind yeah that, i was listening to the radio on the way home this afternoon, and they were saying that it was 150 mile an hour sustained winds that they recorded in some areas of Louisiana. Oh my God. Can you imagine not having the ability to evacuate and having to to sit and hear that wind howl? Well, and even evacuating, where do you go? Do you just keep driving? I mean, there's so much uncertainty when you have to evacuate that it's even more stressful than it would be to, to stay there. <laughs> well, I mean, and, yeah. And, and, you know, we were seeing pictures, speaking of evacuating, we were seeing pictures and video of cowboys, you know, they were trail trailing cattle out of the path of the storm over bridges and along highways, just trying to get them to higher ground and out of the dangerous path of the storm. Yeah. Thank God it didn't take a, a wonky turn because it, it very well could have. Yeah, but it sounded like the for, the forecasters had this one pegged pretty pretty well the path where it was headed and those people were able to to get their livestock out of the way. I tell you what, Kayleen, have you ever seen the Hurricane um, Prediction Center and and the planes that will fly into the hurricane to gather data? Those are some gutsy people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. They, they have more intestinal fortitude than you and I will ever have. <laughs> well, last, last night I saw that the National Weather Service here in Dodge City had a, had a tweet that said the eye of the storm was as big as Dodge City with the plenty of room to go around it, around the city. So basically and, Ford County. <laughs> yeah, basically. I, Which kind of puts it in perspective. <laughs> holy buckets. I tell you what. Well, on top of all of that, you know, thankfully we are... Um, we're still waiting on word for for folks that have you know for casualty reports and things, but we'll keep everybody in our uh, in our thoughts and prayers. Um, the last two weeks, this week and last week, it has been nothing but nonstop uh, convention coverage from the Democrats last week and the and the Republicans this week. You know, it's a it's a, a challenge of our industry as reporters. We 
we pay attention to those things. That's, that's kind of what our job is, is to kind of keep our ear to the ground because the laws that are passed by our representatives at the state, local, and, and uh, federal levels have direct impacts on our farming operations, right? So you kind of listen with one ear, but I got to say, Kayleen, this year I have, instead of watching the conventions, I have done some home improvement projects. I, I just said, I, I can't handle it anymore. They're never going to, we're never going to hear about farming from either <laughs> of the parties as their platforms now. So whatever platforms are there are. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm not very much for politics and I'm not very interested in to hear what either side has to say. That's just, just the way I've been my entire life. And <laughs> yeah, you are the unicorn in, in journalism because everybody else is like, wait, what? <laughs> I don't read books and I don't listen to politics. So yeah. <laughs> but folks, she takes them. Damn fine pictures. Let me tell you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Everybody has their, their own talents and their own, their own wheelhouses. And, um, so Garrett, my, my fella, um, you might imagine we are a little bit different in our political viewpoints as you know, some couples are, that's okay. And so to keep peace in the household, we have not had it on. <laughs> and instead <laughs> we've been working on home improvement projects. <laughs> so I have to tell y'all last week, um, I, so when I bought this house, I inherited a massive tractor tire in the backyard that had been used in some form or fashion from the nice lady that lived there for 30 years before I bought the house. It's, it's gross. I I don't want a tractor tire. I don't know why anybody would, it's not, it's not even something you can repurpose. Kayleen. (laughs) Was it ever painted? (laughs) No, thank God she hadn't painted it. Oh, thank God. Cause she painted everything in that house pink. I'm, I'm not kidding you. There, it's pink and country blue was her two favorite colors. Mm, yummy. Did yeah. you have ducks and all kinds of country critters too? I had geese and seashells. <laughs> yep. Typical 1980s rejob. Re- let me tell you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Garrett um, started hacking away at the tire so we can properly dispose of it. We hacked away at the, um, the nasty shower that's been needing to be replaced in the basement. It's gone, and we hauled out a few other things, and we've done a whole host of improvement projects, and we're still talking to each other, Kayleen. So which would have been more damaging to the relationship, watching the political conventions or these home improvement projects? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Love you, honey. (laughs) Because I know how... My husband and I, how we would watch the political conventions, because we have similar feelings on the candidates and everything. And when it comes to doing projects at home, it's a little more challenging. (laughs) Okay, so I got to ask you, when you're doing home improvement projects, who is the thinker and who is just the doer? He's probably both, because I plan for ever in a day that I want to do something and sit on it and plan and think and rehash it and go about it 12 different ways. And if it's something that really needs to be done, he'll be just like, here, we need this, this, and this, and let's just do it. He's 
he's a doer. He's not, not like I am. <laughs> <laughs> but there's not a whole lot of home improvement projects that need to be done inside the house. It's outside the house that needs to be done. It's ranch improvement project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fence and it's mowing and weed eating and all kinds of stuff. So I got to say, this is probably why you and I are friends and we click and we, we, you're the yin to my yang, because I'm more like your husband. Look, we know what needs to be done. We have, we gather the materials and you just start in and you get it done and you don't stop until it's done. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of, well, I get to a point where I'm, I'm tired and I'm sick of it and I've put enough mental anguish into this project already that if I reach that, that wall, (laughs) I just stop. (laughs) So Garrett's like you, Garrett's a teacher. So he's used to plotting out every single step so that you, you know, one after another, after another. And he's also not used to somebody helping. And so for him, it's, could you just let me just do it? Let me just do it. I'm like, dude, I help my dad build fence <laughs> and trust me, you don't just stop in the middle and go, okay, let's, let's take a break and we'll, we'll sit down over here and we'll, you know, just think about it. No, no, that doesn't go well with, with Papa Latsky. No, no. Yeah. You, you get in there, you get it done and you, then you go home and have brownies and, and a nice cold glass of pop. <laughs> well, I've been around my husband long enough to know, I can think two steps ahead of him and know what he's going to need. If he needs more welding rod, if he needs, you know, this tool or that tool. And I'm pretty good about knowing what to bring him. Not always. (laughs) I am a champion light holder. (laughs) Did you see that thing I shared on, on Facebook the other day about, um, you know, some people, you can tell some people have not held the light for their dads. Yeah. <laughs> or back like, the trailer back the trailer in front of their dad or you know, that yeah. sort of thing. I'm like, please, I had to back a trailer for my dad. And <laughs> I'm not good at that. But you know, like I tell Garrett all the time, I said, Honey, I've I've learned how to do it for myself. It may not be the the shop teacher approved way, but it gets <laughs> it done. So there you go. Um Let's see what else is going on. Well, you and Spence, you went down to Cherokee, Oklahoma for a rodeo, right? Yeah, Friday night he was entered at Cherokee at the Cape Prairie Rodeo. And um, I don't know, he's had trouble drawing good horses this year and hasn't had very much luck there and didn't get a check, but he finally broke his streak. And Saturday he went to Dighton and Mead. They had scheduled the rodeo so guys could hit both rodeos. They One was at six and the other was at eight, but there was an hour and a half between the rodeos. So the KPRA has an initiative this year, um, something, some Kansas thing with drinking and driving. I can't think of the name of it, it what it is, but they had cops positioned along the way and to encourage the guys to obey the law no speeding no drinking and driving and I heard there was only three guys that got tickets so that it is what it is <laughs> you know folks this is 2020 if you have to be told to not drink and drive <laughs> after <Yeah>. 30 years <laughs> of moms against drunk driving and 40 years of students against drunk driving and however much come on yeah <laughs> 
Well, and at Cherokee, you couldn't really tell if there was a pandemic going on. I did see more masks at Cherokee than I've seen all summer long. And there were older folks wearing the masks. So, I mean, there was people taking precautions and there was some social distancing going on, but I wouldn't say a whole lot. <laughs> well, the Oklahoma and the Panhandle, they've seen some some cases and, and some, you know, rises in that. I, yeah. I, yeah, I and they've been they've been open more open for business than Kansas has yeah. from the get-go. So hey I don't know. speaking of, of masks and doing some shopping, so for the first time since this all started, I ventured to Hutchinson with Garrett on, on Saturday for the K-State um the Kansas State Fair. They they aren't having the fair this year. However, we know that the, the year's worth of receipts that come in from all the vendors and everybody paying tickets and all of the stuff that happens at the fair, those receipts will help tide the fair over until the next year. So without this year's fair, Kayleen, the Kansas State Fair is $2.5 million in the hole as far as operating capital. Um, that's, just, that's just to make sure that the lights stay on for 2021. And so knowing that they could not have a fair, could not have the massive crowds that we expect, but there were some, some vendors, some food vendors that said, hey, we can, you know, we'd like to just bring the truck to the fairgrounds, open it up with our staff that understands the precautions and have some fair food available for people to buy. And so the state fair folks, Amy Bickle, our, our friend, Amy Bickle, that used to work with us, she's working over at the Kansas State Fair now. Uh, they created the Fair Food and Tunes Weekend. And so they had some some free entertainment on the stage at Lake Talbot. And people sat and social distanced themselves, you know, away from each other so they could enjoy the, the music. But then there were also food lines. And Garrett and I went and it wasn't that bad until it got really kind of crowded. And then, you know, the line started backing up and everything. And and for my part, since we were outside, I didn't wear a mask, Kayleen. I, I figured as long as I was away from people and I wasn't bunched up against them, I'd be okay. Now, we did shop in stores in Hutchinson, and we wore the masks because Hutchinson has an ordinance that you need to wear masks when you go inside. So we did. Um, it wasn't comfortable, but, you know, I, I ran my errands, and, and um, I didn't feel that bad. You know, I, I, I kind of ventured outside of my bubble. Yeah, that's good to do that. Well, how are you guys? I, I wonder I wonder how people are, right, Kayleen? <laughs> I don't know. From the looks of the school parking lot, I don't wonder about people at all. <laughs> yeah, how is school pickup going? I'm just glad I don't have to do that every day because I would have way more gray hairs than I already have on my head. <laughs> And how is it that the people with the big vehicles can just wheel them in there and park between the lines, but these people with the little bitty cars can't pull them in there square? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> Haley needs to have her own separate um, podcast of, look here, buddy, this is how you drive. <laughs> <laughs> My sister gets the three o'clock update from the parking lot of <laughs> what idiot is parked next to her. 
<laughs> Note to self, do not pick up anybody's students in Dodge City because Kayleen will judge you. <laughs> so how are you folks doing out there? Drop us a line at hbjtalk at hbj.com and let us know. Or call us at 1-800-452-7171. Hey, and go ahead and do us a favor and head on over to Apple or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. This week's episode will bring you the stories you might have missed in the August 24th print edition. We'll have our report from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondent. Uh, This week is our guest, Martha Mintz. And we'll also have a second part of our farmer panel from the 2020 HPJ Sorghum and Wheat U. All that and Kayleen will bring us the latest on grain markets and we'll have our final thoughts. Alta Seeds brings you this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line to the U.S. market July 8th in the first ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to register for the second Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day to further showcase iGrowth at hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers. Learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Well, hey folks, we're in wheat country and it is definitely just about time to get that drill going. So good luck out there gearing up for another crop and thanks for riding with us here on HPJ Talk. week's cover story is by Kayleen. Sorghum basis is higher than corn for once. Adam Baldwin, a McPherson County, Kansas farmer, has found he needs to go out on the limb when marketing his sorghum crop. He's found it pays a little better when he's aggressive with his selling. Baldwin's operation is split equally between wheat, corn, sorghum, and soybeans. In his area, planting choices have shifted and sorghum acres have declined as farmers went to soybeans and dryland corn as those crop genetics improved. On his dryland acres though, yields between corn and sorghum are normally fairly similar and the input costs aren't that far apart, he says. A lot of times the determining factor is either quality of the ground or the price ratio between corn and milo, Baldwin said. Normally corns may be a 30 cent premium to milo, so that basically makes up for the difference in seed costs. By mid-July, the basis for new crop sorghum and corn saw a 55-cent difference, Baldwin said, with sorghum having the advantage. Quote, that changes the entire economic relationship between the two. He said, our dryland corn looks like it's going to be really good, but I wish we had less of it and had more milo. Kayleen, you also spoke with Brady Huck, risk advisor with Advanced Trading Incorporated of Dodge City, and Florentino Lopez, Sorghum Checkoff Executive Director, they both talked about China's influence on the markets. And, and I got to say, we heard recently, um, just yesterday, we saw the first uh, boatload of corn getting loaded out of the Texas ports on its way to China uh, with Wayne Cleveland and, and the crew at Texas Sorghum. So um, what did Florentino and Brady have to say about uh, China's influence? Yeah, Brady said that uh, grain sorghum demand is very sensitive to political changes and 
China's demand can easily tighten on the U.S. balance sheet. And he said, when Milo is a discount to corn, it finds demand by pricing it into ethanol and to feed. And when China is the buyer, it often becomes a premium to corn. So the Chinese like Milo. They have a lot of products they use. They use it for feed for, I believe it's ducks, and they have a, a special um, liquor that they make out of it. So they have certain things that they use the sorghum for that they really like. Good. Well, um, you know, anytime that we can improve the trade for our, our commodities here in the United States, it really has direct impact on, on the farmers at the, at the field level. So uh, sorghum sounds like it's, it's on a rise. Yeah, and Jenny had another sorghum story on the inside, Kansas Sorghum Farmers See Opportunities. Her story detailed what Jesse McCurry, executive director of both the Kansas Grain Sorghum Commission and the Kansas Grain Sorghum Producers Association presented during Sorghum U, Wheat U, August 12th. Kansas sorghum farmers have plenty of opportunities ahead of them, McCurry said. The number of sorghum acres in Kansas is improving with estimates of 2.75 million acres planted, up 6% from last year. Among other things, McCurry pointed out that a typical dryland sorghum budget in Kansas returns about $96.57 per acre or 30% over total cost. That's about $26 more than corn in similar situations. And on top of all that, it's a water sipper. So it's it's something that turns uh, farmers' heads when they're looking at their bottom lines, Kaylee. Yep. And also on the opinions and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmeier has a column this week, Success Depends on Preparation. A letter to the editor comes from Barb Kalblock, a fourth-generation family farmer and Iowa CCI member from Adair County, Iowa, Jefferson Jones, a fourth-generation cattle grain and hay farmer with the Missouri uh, Rural Crisis Center, uh, Callaway County, Missouri, or in Callaway County, Missouri, John Harder, a livestock producer, and Dakota DRA chairperson from Winter, South Dakota, and Daryl Moselle, cattle soybean and corn farmer of the Land Steward Project, a member from Gaylord, Minnesota, titled Meatpacking Corporations Cashing on Pandemic Why Family Farms and Consumers Fit the Bill. Another letter to the editor comes from Craig Dirksen, Nebraska NRCS state conservationist titled, Farmers, Ranchers, and Landowners are Doing Their Part to Improve Water Quality. Our friend David Murray from the Waterways Journal has a couple of crop stories in this issue. Scientists raised alarm on herbicide resistance and a bin-busting year for corn and soybeans. In our exclusive coverage from Sorghum U and Wheat U, you'll find several stories covering the sorghum side of things. I have a story about how double cropping can be an option, and you'll also find two stories from Lacey Newland, viewing sorghum from a different angle and managing fertility for profitable farming. While Dave Bergmeier has a story, finding right production strategy continues to evolve for panelists. You can find more information and the recordings of our Sorghum U Wheat U sessions at www.hpj.com suwu. And Dave also has a story about the devastation Iowa farmers are facing in the aftermath of the derecho. We heard his interview last week in last week's episode of HPJ Talk, but his story in this week's print edition is titled Iowa Headache, Derecho Hands a Haymaker to Corn Farmers. You can check it out online at hpj.com.
Read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. High Plains Journal's Cattle U has moved to a virtual event during the week of September 7th to 11th. Don't miss your chance to hear from the top names in the cattle industry and learn how you can bring more value to your herd. Sessions will target all segments of the cattle business, from the cow-calf producer to the feedlot manager. For registration details, visit cattleu.net. time for an update from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest Correspondence, brought to you by the Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unverfirth Manufacturing, AgriProceed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF. Hey everyone, welcome again to your update for All Aboard Wheat Harvest, and joining us today is our very special guest correspondent that we added to the All Aboard crew this year, Martha Mintz. Now, Martha, you are from Montana, but you are not a harvester, you're a freelancer, right? That's right. I do custom writing, like these guys do their their custom combining, Um, and I always wanted to be a harvester, Um, but that was my dad's job on the farm and ranch. Um, I was strictly only allowed to drive the trucks, um, and, uh, and do summer fallow. So someday somebody will let me drive a combine in the Palouse. They did not. (laughs) Well, now you almost had a really great opportunity to drive a combine, but a very special kind of combine. Um, folks, we added Martha and her wonderful talents to our crew this year to help us expand the story of wheat harvest, not just in our Plain states, but up in our Pacific Northwest states and particularly a part of the world called the Palouse area of Washington state. And Martha, tell us about the Palouse and what makes it so special. Man, the I feel sorry for the custom cutters that they don't go there because if you like wheat, man, the Palouse is is the place to be. Um, so it kind of it's a place that straddles um, the Idaho and uh, eastern Washington border, and it's just these incredible rolling. And I don't mean rolling like Kansas rolling. I mean kind of mountain foothill rolling hills, and they have farmed every square inch. I am talking when you are driving down a a dirt gravel road, um, chances are you could pull over to meet a truck and run over a little wheat on the side of the road. Um, You know, they they go all the way up to the hilltops and all the way down to the valley bottoms. And if they didn't farm it, man, nobody can. Um, But it's it's just a a fantastic wheat growing wheat growing region. They grow a lot of um, of of white wheat there, uh, white winter wheat, white spring wheat. they grow uh, some club varieties, which are fascinating because instead of like the long wheat heads that you would see um, in, in what we're used to in, in you know, more of the plain states um, with the winter wheat, these are like these little compact wheat heads that just get fatter and fatter instead of longer. And when you look at the field, it's almost like it's pixelated like a, a photo. It's like these little dots all the way throughout the field. So it's, it's just fascinating and beautiful country. 
You know, um, Kayleen, my folks have moved up to Montana as part of their retirement, and um, they're from north of of, uh, Missoula, Montana, and Lake Missoula, the ancient Lake Missoula, um, back in the Ice Age, when it um, bowled over, when it flooded out, it didn't just stop at the border of Montana and Idaho. It went clear on into Washington State, right? I think, um, you know, I didn't look insanely deeply into that, but I would imagine it went all the way to the ocean. Um, it, uh, so the, the northern part of the Palouse where I ended up, you know, they, um, that flood had gone through. And so they don't get to do some of the actual sides of the hill. Like some of their hill sides have been washed away. And instead they're left with these like kind of cliffs um, because these floods took out foot upon foot upon foot of topsoil and disappeared it down the, down the drainage. So, um, so yeah, it's fascinating. They talk about their good top ground because their bottom ground um, was all washed away in the ice age. Man, Kayleen, did you see those pictures Martha sent to us? Yeah, they were pretty sweet. <laughs> tell us, tell us how you got some of your shots. You know, it was a, it was a really challenging place um, to do photography. Um, certainly not for lack of beauty because it was a beautiful, beautiful place, but trying to show people just how steep those hills are is, is actually really, really difficult. You had to get kind of creative. I had to get out of the combine and actually, you know, stand really close in front of it to try to show the angle it was on the hill. But, you know, just to give you an idea of the steepness, um, you know, one of the, one of the slopes that we cut, they said was, um, I think the, the gauge on the combine said it was at like 45 degrees or 46 degrees or something like that. To put that in perspective, the stairs in your house are like 25 to 35 degrees. Um, so 45 degrees would be really, really, really steep stairs and then go beyond 45 degrees. And it's like, let, let's just say some of these hills are, are hills that if I was exercising, I would look at them and be like, ah, I'm not going to do that today. That's too much. So like, <laughs> these are, are really steep hills and it was really hard to capture that in photography. And I, I honestly don't think I still, I, I still don't think I did, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of a, a well, challenge. You know you had challenges too, because the weather didn't exactly cooperate. And Kayleen and I know when you have a, a, a date to go and, and chat with the farmer, you get what mother nature gives you and you just don't throw a fit, right? That is right. You get what you get and you don't throw fits. So um, yeah, it was actually really frustrating. This is an area that I can't remember the exact amount, but like, let's say 12 inches of moisture and most of it comes in the winter. Um, so the the night before I was supposed to get out to the farm, it sprinkled is a generous term for what it did, maybe misted. Um, and it was, it was just enough that we, we got in the field and we only, you know, we, we did a bunch of equipment prep and all that kind of stuff, but we got in the field and it was a no-go. Um, so, you know, there I'd, I'd driven two hours out there in the morning and, and there was, you know, then there was nothing to do. <laughs> so, uh, so that cut it really short and we just kind of crossed our fingers and, and hoped that it would dry out later in the day and that, that we could circle back around and, and get some harvest later in the day that turned out we could. Um, but it rained then too. Uh, so apparently I bring rain to the Palouse. You're welcome, everybody who was trying to harvest that day. 
Um, <laughs> but we, we did finally get a little bit of harvest done. And so I was able to, to take some photos, but I certainly did not have the full day that I thought I was going to have to try to figure out the angles and, you know, get those perfect shots. So, um, but I was happy with what we ended up getting and the rain always adds a, a lovely contrast to the skies that can sometimes be boring. So. So I got to ask you, um, I'm not a, a very good technical person when it comes to machinery. Kayleen can a- attest to this. I know do do mahickeys and flanges, you know, oh, yes. those, those work for me. Um, so explain to the listeners, if you can, just how do those combines and that equipment, how does it stick to a 45 degree angle? You know, is there some hydraulics involved? Do they have special tires? Is there some extra gripping? Because I imagine if you get a, a nice little bit of a rainfall, not only do you have muddy conditions in the field, but you could find yourself on the bottom of the hill. <laughs> they assured me that um, not many combines end up at the bottom of the hill, um, but then they also told me several stories that would indicate um, that it does in fact happen. So yeah, I mean, the technology that goes into this is is really fascinating. I mean, the, the first thing that you'll notice out there is every big tractor out there has tracks on it um, instead of, of wheels, and they all run these really big four-wheel drive tractors. Um, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense for your planting and stuff. It's kind of overkill for the grain cart, but uh, even just riding the grain cart up to the top of the hill, you know, there was there was definitely some effort being put in by that tractor to grip and, and get enough traction to get up the hill. Um, now the combines, you know, you talk about mud. Um, I don't think they really see mud in, in the Palouse um, at harvest time. I mean, you know, they got 0.02 inches and that was shocking um, during that time frame. So they're pretty lucky that way. Um, but as far as like going along the slopes, so I am a Dumahickey girl myself, but from what I understand is there's some sort of hydraulic type system. Um, and they it independently adjusts the header, the tires of the machine, and the machine cab. So if you look at a picture, so the header will be canted um, and the tires will will try to keep straight up, um, but often will be slightly tilted as well. And then the cab also tries to adjust. Um, and I, I may be screwing that up. The tires and the cab may not be independent, but um, one of the important things to realize is, is that those combines can't correct angle all the way up to the 45 degrees that they do. So you'll be sitting in the combine and it's doing its best to level. It's way leveler than it would be if in a, in a traditional combine, but you're still kind of lean into the side and in, in the buddy seat, like leaning up against the door. I'm like, should I put on my seatbelt? And they laughed at me, which I did not appreciate because I felt like it was a legitimate question. Um, and, uh, uh, so I, I did not put on my seatbelt, um, but I felt like it was required. So anyway, everything tilts, but then, uh, things that you don't see are that in order to not lose a bunch of grain, you also need the inner workings of the combine to remain level as well. Otherwise you'll get a bunch of grain to one side of the screen and you'll lose a, ba- a bunch out back. So there is a separate leveling system within the combine, um, to, to keep, I believe the screen, um, you know, people are probably going to correct me, but, uh, the screen level um, to to keep more grain going in. And then there's also like when you are uh, unloading the combine into the grain cart, uh, you have to think about things like, you know, 
am I going to overshoot the grain cart because I'm on the uphill side and it's on the downhill side? Um, is my auger going to hit the grain cart because it's on the uphill side and I'm on the downhill side? The solution is, is generally they try to dump on the flat. Um, but it, it was hilarious with the hills. Um, I didn't get to see it because I think you only get to play this prank once, um, but you can kind of hide from the other operators in the field. So um, the Casey, who was the foreman at the farm, showed me how when he was harvesting with his son, his son was dumping into the grain cart and then he pulled up behind him and was dumping into his uh, combine uh, bin. And so his son was like, what is going on? I can't, you know, cause he couldn't, how much did I like, harvest? why is, yes. How much did I harvest? Um, and they had a picture of it, which was hilarious. I mean, it was just so perfectly lined up. Um, so anyway, yes, there's lots of fun to be had in hill harvest. Um, like I said, in the article, even when I was sitting in the grain cart, you know, it was like, oh, he's ready to unload. Where, where is he? And it, it took us a little while to figure out where exactly he was because he was over the edge of a hill. And we, you know, these are big fields and lots of hills and, and you couldn't see him. So, well, and, and Kayleen, you know, we know that there's six kinds of, of wheat classes. So um, you had asked, you know, what exactly do you use club wheat for and, and white wheat? The club wheat is, um, it's not a variety that'll be planted in a lot of places, um, but it's used. So most of the white wheat goes to the Asian markets um, and they, they like the lower protein wheat and um, they, they make very puffy breads. Um, and in order to get the consistency of flour that they want, they uh, mix in this club variety for its different properties. Um, and what specifically those are, I'm not sure, but it's it's just something that goes along with the spring wheat. Yeah, it has something to do with falling numbers and and how much gluten um, and the strength um, that you get in that wheat, the the puffiness that you want out of a out of like say a Japanese um, sweet roll. Um, it it gives it a very light and airy kind of flavor. Those sweet buns, and um, it's it's different from your typical wheat that'll go into crackers or noodles or the bread that you buy in the store. So it's just a different specialization of wheats. And, you know, what we, what's interesting is our all aboard wheat harvest crews, we have hard red winter in this country, you know, that they're cutting. It's the same. It looks the same from Texas all the way up to um, Nebraska and, and the Dakotas and such, um, unless we have white, hard, hard white winter wheat. So uh, Kayleen, any other thoughts, any other questions? What was the coolest thing you got to see while you were cutting wheat in the Palouse? Well, I think the most exciting part was, um, and it wasn't with there, it's, it's, there's plenty of visual things, but a lot of it is about what you're feeling. Like when you're in a combine riding on one of those, those side hills. Um, but we, we reached the end of a hill and, um, you know, kind of went right off the, the nose of it. And, um, he reached out and flipped a, a lever, pushed a button. I don't remember what. And he's like, well, we have to turn the four wheel drive off going downhill because um, otherwise if the back tires are spinning, um, they'll make the combine bounce. And if you have a full load, you can go over the front. Um, so I was like, oh, and again, I'm like, why am I not wearing a seatbelt? Um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's all good. Um, and uh, so we, we got down and when you were going straight down that angle, I mean, it felt very much like a roller coaster, like, you know, a slow moving roller coaster, but you definitely were sliding forward on your seat. It was a, it was a significantly forward um, 
thing. And then he had, he asked if I wanted to cut an eyebrow. Um, and an eyebrow is where they have planted up to the edge of a very, very steep part of the field that they can't farm. And so you kind of hang along the edge and, and cut off those little tufts that would stick up, you know, like a, like unkempt eyebrows. Um, and, uh, while we were going off that, he said that one year he was too full going across that and he slid off onto the really steep spot and got stuck. So they kind of had to engineer how to, how to get back on the, uh, on the field. So these guys are definitely problem solvers. They, they have uh, unique problems, um, and, and have to solve them in, in unique ways. Well, hey, Martha, thank you so much for bringing the story of a different part of the country's wheat harvest to our All Aboard Wheat Harvest crews. Thanks to Brett uh, Blankenship for um, the uh, your farmer who you uh, you went out and, and spoke with. Uh, Brett is no stranger to the National Wheat Circuit because he used to be our, our president of National Association of Wheat Growers, and, and um, he's a familiar face to folks that follow the wheat industry. Martha, thanks so much uh, for riding along with us, for riding along with them. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys for the opportunity. Let me tell you, it was a, it was a dream come true. And Brett was just an awesome dude uh, with so many different facets to him. And, and it was, it was really a treat on my part. So thank you guys. Aw. Well, yeah. hey, we will uh, see you on the trail and uh, thanks again, folks. And remember everybody, you can catch up with Martha's amazing photography from the Palouse part of Washington state on the blog, that's allaboardharvest.com. And uh, we'll see you on the trail, Martha. Well, thanks again to Martha for that update. And remember, if you wanna catch up with our All Aboard Weed Harvest crews, visit their blog at allaboardharvest.com. You can also look for their posts in the pages of High Plains Journal each week. All Aboard Weed Harvest is brought to you by Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unverfirth Manufacturing, AgriPro Seed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF, who remind you that we're all in this together. This week, we'll bring you the second half of our farmer panel from the Sorghum U slash Wheat U that was held um, earlier this month in, in August. Uh, remember to catch the full recordings of all of our sessions. You can check those out online at hpj.com slash suwu. Charlie, you know, water is a is a growing concern in the plains and you know granted you're over in in Larned and you have a little bit more water availability than than most people far out west but um what are you uh, concerned about for for your sorghum and your your customer's sorghum um you know with with us competing more and more for water with other entities um how does sorghum help you and help your customers um manage the the water issue in the plains. Um, you know, sorghum has been really good. We're getting a lot of pivots, even though we've been wet here the last eight years. You know, I'm getting a lot of pivots, particularly as you go right south of Larned. North of Larned is all dry land. South of Larned is you run into irrigation. But we're getting a lot of pivots where our water is dropping. You just what used to be an 800-gallon well is, you know, down to five. What used to be a 600-gallon well now down to two or three. Um, and corn, you know, it's kind of taking corn out of some of those markets a little bit because it's we're just losing the big the big water. And sorghum's a great choice there. You know, it, if you run low on water in the middle of the summer, it it will not go to zero. You you might not have the big yield that you were looking for, but at least you can still have a good crop. So 
seen a lot more uh, sorghum, seen a lot of grazing of sedans uh, where some of these commodity prices have been down a little bit. The cattle program has come into play a little bit. Some of these limited water circles are where they've overpumped their allocation. Uh, we're going to sedan and plant it to graze all summer. When they run out of water, they stop and see how long it lasts. Uh, so that's kind of given us a, a help. As you move west, it's only becoming a bigger issue. A lot more forage sort of out there than where we used to have corn silage. So um, I guess it, it gives us an alternative there. Okay, okay. Moving on, uh, what's one lesson that you will take away from sorghum and, and wheat you that you'll apply to farming methods either in 21 or 2022? And, and Charlie, you've got the floor. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I enjoyed the fertility discussion, you know, looking at some of the other things. Uh, I sometimes get caught on the majors and, you know, forget the sulfur and some of those other things that we also need to be paid attention to. Um, probably watch that and, uh, you know, and some of the, the herbicide discussions, where are we going to go there and which one's going to play out the best, which one's going to give us the most control and how are we going to layer it in with everything else that we're doing as far as chemicals? And, and Eric, uh, same for you. What, what's one lesson that you're going to take um, from the speakers from this year's Sorghum and Wheat You? Yeah, I think the fertility will be something that we'll, we've always watched, but we'll, it's good to be reminded of it and, and bring it back to the forefront and think about some of the things that we need to be doing. Um, the herbicide discussion, like he said, is very important, I think. Um, and just watching what happens with weed as we move forward and some of the innovations that are coming out of that and the innovations out of soil. Okay. Well, now, um, can't we, we heard from Jordan Bell, who spoke about uh, working with large-scale dairies to source wheat silage crop for their needs. Um, you know, that's just one more way, one more market that is opening up and developing for our wheat crops. Um, there's ongoing research into winter Durham for uh, pasta in, in, at K-State. There's even some Oklahoma growers that are growing some, some uh, wheat for pasta and tortilla markets. Um, we see this new market for forage sorghums. So um, what grabs your interest in considering these new markets? And as a consultant, how do you have that conversation with a grower about, you know, have you tried this idea? You know, have you tried looking over here for, for dollars on the table? Sure. Well, I, you know, I think it's an interesting discussion and interesting things to talk about and think about, um, you know, all the options need to be on the table. And, and I love to think a little bit outside the box or a little bit differently than most to ask ourselves. And, and that's what I think is, is really neat about a forum like this is it gives us the opportunity to listen to people and say, is what we've been doing what we should be doing, or can we try something new that might give us an edge or an opportunity or something else we can do? So, you know, I, I always think back to the logistics of it. You know, am I or is someone I'm talking to in an area and in a position that they're close enough to a specialty market or a specialty use for a crop like that, that we can take it there and that we can capitalize on, on doing that different management or using that as a, as a different product. So those are, those are the things that, that I asked. Then the second thing is, do we have the conditions and the ability to grow that for the special need that it is? You know, can we grow a Durham wheat? Can we 
uh, produce a sorghum that has the characteristics that someone out there in the world wants. One of the things that I've come to realize over time in working with different commodities and different organizations is there are people out there looking for something very specific in your crop. The hard part is connecting those two people together. Some people have the desire to grow the specialty crop but can't find the market. And some people want the crop but can't find the grower or can't find the, find the person in the right position for that. So when you marry those two together, it's a really neat thing to see. Someone who can and will grow it to provide it to an end user that really has that desire to have that, that product. And I think that's really fantastic when we can do that. It's very unique, but very fantastic. You know, that brings to mind, Eric, you you have in your rotation, uh, you've got beans, uh, you know, what was it? Uh, peas or black eyed peas? Pinto beans. Yeah. I knew there was a dry edible in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got those, you, you've tinkered with spring wheat. Um you don't strike me as a man that's afraid to, you know, try something. Do these new uh, uses for wheat, do they kind of pique your interest, especially with the large number of large dairies in a, in a close area to you? Yeah, there are. I, I, something that I always try to do is look for some new things to try out. And we don't want to go too grand of a scale with it, but take a few acres and try it and see, can we make it work? Does it look like it'll be successful? Um, and we're, we're always looking for things. And, and I think there's some possibilities down the road. One of the challenges always becomes, can you find a market for it? Uh, as Kent mentioned, it's it, okay, I can grow it, but if there's nobody to buy it or, or it's too far to get it somewhere, am, am I going to be successful at it? So you have to evaluate that and you have to try to find things that fit into what you're doing and also fit into what's around you and that you can utilize. And, uh, but I, there's some good possibilities out there with that, that, uh, look exciting to me. So maybe this is a personal question, but how, how do you find your markets? Is it just, you know, <laughs> making some phone calls or uh, you, you've got some friends that, that know a friend? Sure. Well, some of the things we're doing uh, obviously fit into what we've been doing long-term and we have long-term relationships there. The spring week came about by some discussion with some people uh, in the seed wheat business and some people we've been working with on marketing. And uh, just the idea of looking at it and thinking about it. And there's been several different people across our area looking at it and trying a few acres. And I don't know that anybody's been highly successful. I've heard some decent results from some people. Uh, and, and there's a market in Kansas City that's really looking for that to add some protein and, and that milling and baking quality that that spring wheat brings. And so, like I said, that's where some of that's having connections and discussions through peer groups and other things that have really been beneficial to us. And the other things are just long-term things that continue on, I guess. Uh, that reminds me, um, I didn't ask this question the first go around, but are there questions that you panelists have for the other panelists? <laughs> I'll open it up. Kent, Charlie. <laughs> Oh, seriously, not the three of you have no questions for each other. That's rare that Kent doesn't have a question for another panelist. Well, I don't know where to start. You know, what I think would be interesting is, and I know it's a part of the purpose of this group, but always trying to think between the lines on the discussions 
you know, how the value of wheat and sorghum come together, you know, as an entire crop rotation value. You know, I, I think it's, I, I can't point a question to any one person, but I think it's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe as a sorghum U and wheat U event, the concluding slide should always be how does my topic pull the two crops together and how does one benefit the other? Because I know for me, um, there, there are people here in my area who grow wheat without sorghum, but I don't know any sorghum growers that grow sorghum without wheat. You know, it, it is very much a complementary crop. And most of the people in my area who do grow wheat without sorghum probably should be growing something else. And sorghum would make a great option for them. So I think that's, that's it. You know, all, all of my questions would have to open back up presentations again. <laughs> well, I think the two tie together from the standpoint, you know, for me, it's a labor issue. You know, it, it spreads out that harvest, uh, spreads some things around, and then it becomes a, a wheat control issue. And, you know, my sorghum behind wheat, when I do the averages, is somewhere around 20 to 25 bushel an acre better, you know, under most circumstances. Um, but boy, it's getting hard to make that wheat decision when I run the budgets on wheat. I've got to get to 50 plus bushels to even hit break evens. Um, that, that's what makes it hard for me as I'm sitting here trying to decide do I plant the wheat that I was planning on planting, but it, it when they sure complement each other well, it just, to get that wheat price back up a little bit yeah i think i think that's right i think their comments fit very well i think they do complement each other very well and and you, you can't have one without the other in a lot of ways and our, our wheat acres are going to go up this fall because we we see that with our corn and with our other stuff on our dryland acres uh the value of the wheat in that rotation and how it complements the other crops and brings brings value to them through weed control and through moisture retention and other things. Well, and Jennifer, if I can, uh, you know, in regard to what Charlie was saying there, um, I went through the time with less wheat and that was largely a part of adding in another crop into the rotation, kind of changing the rotation up. We got into some sesame. Uh, we need needed to get into a different phases and, and things have gotten out of whack my technical term there it's out of whack um and now i'm realizing how much value that wheat had which is the reason why i intend to plant more wheat this year than i typically do one of the things i think is neat about wheat as a cover crop is you know to be real honest i can look at it in march and say hmm, does it look like something i want to take to yield or does it look like it's a cover crop and i can make the decision at that time if it was a cover crop you know, that's when the, the neighbors drive by and said, you know, what are you doing out there? Oh, don't worry, it's a cover crop. Or, hey, that looks great. Yeah, I meant to do that. You know, so that will help me a lot, I think. And as we as we go back onto the presentations, when we think about nutrient movement, nutrient runoff, you know, we think about herbicides, you know, the need for herbicide tolerance. You know, using the crops together can minimize that need for herbicide tolerance in some of our crops. And so, you know, those are the things that keeps me thinking, you know, that I think Charlie, I can't remember if it was Charlie or Eric that mentioned rye in our last 
panel discussion thinking about the weed suppression that rye gives, even though rye is a bad word for most of us. Uh, you know, so thinking those things through and how can we use the cropping systems and the biology about our systems to minimize our dependence on some of these things that we're develop, developing as technologies that maybe we don't always need to depend on quite as much. Just it's another thought there. Well, now, um, before we before we head out, uh, we had Roger McEwen at the top of yesterday and talking about the legal issues and that we need to watch out for for the future of our farms. And we know that production is one one part of the stool. Marketing is another part of the stool. But we also have to look for the future of our farming operations. Um, is there something on your minds or in your in, on the minds of your neighbors as far as your farm structures or uh, labor or, um, you know, taxation or anything like that, uh, maybe even aging on the farm that is an issue that uh, maybe isn't in pertains to the production part of, of farming, but it's that sustainability part of farming. And, and Charlie, I got you, so I'll, I'll let you go, go first. You know, I think the labor is going to be a huge issue. Um, as I'm calling customers trying to sell them seed, I mean, if I had access to a stream of labor, I'd it's almost you know ending what guys need as far as labor and quality help is just really hard to find you know um, it's amazing to me what some of these farmers are paying to keep to try and get help and how they're even struggling to keep them at some of the amounts they're paying we see where the unemployment is across the country i'm like hey come to farm country we are looking for people i think it's a little different work than what most of them are wanting to do yeah, and I don't know if I'd just hand over the keys to some of that equipment that you all have just to somebody off the street because I know it's been a while since I've driven a tractor or a combine and I'd have a I'd I'd at least have to take a, a test drive with somebody in the buddy seat with me. Yeah. <laughs> the first 20 days. Thought attorney someone that has never been on a half million dollar combine, yeah, loose is uh, is a little scary, even on you know, and that's the problem too. You know, so much of this equipment, when I started, you know, we were pulling a three bladed undercutter with a 130 horsepower tractor. I mean, you couldn't tear a whole lot up real quick. But today, the dollar amounts on just a little hiccup are uh, kind of frightening. Yep. Yep. Eric, how about you? What, what, uh, what's something that you and your neighbors talk about when you, when you talk? Yeah, labor is a major issue. Uh, I think across all of farm country, there's a lot of issues with labor. Uh, we're utilizing the H-2A program to help us with that sum. That's been a huge benefit to us. Um, and I think that program needs to continue to continue to help us in agriculture. Uh, he's right, there's a lot of unemployment and it'd be like nice to draw those people to the farm to help out here. Uh, but there's some challenges with that. Like you said, we, we have very high dollar equipment and uh, you just don't turn anybody loose with it. Uh, you need some training and, and uh, belief that they can handle the equipment and, and belief from them that they can handle the equipment comes down to it. Um, another issue that I see as a, as a big issue is the transition from where we are. We, we have an aging uh, farm community and uh, that, that transition's coming and how that's gonna look and what's gonna happen with that as we, we transition from to the next generation, if you will. Uh, 
we're all at different stages of that, but it's it's coming as we watch this age rise in agriculture. You know, that reminds me, West Can's not that large of a community. Um, about everybody no, knows. It's very small. Yeah, but that's a, it's a typical representation of what we have out here on the plains because we we have a lot of land mass, but we're we're really concentrated in in small little pockets here and there. And with folks trying wanting to age on the farm, um, you know those communities have a they see some more um, uh, some more uh, emphasis on on certain aspects of of community life or or offerings um, in West Can. Do you see uh, more services for for older folks, or is it tough to find a a hospital? How's your Wi-Fi? I mean, today we're, we're seeing it's really great, but is this a random occurrence of good? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, we have challenges. We are very rural here. Uh, my, my wife did a, a grant for the school to get some playground equipment, and they said, put Frontier on there. We're not rural, we're Frontier here. And I thought that was, I've always thought that was fascinating that they find us as Frontier. And, and in a lot of ways, we are Frontier, I guess, but... Uh, we don't think of ourselves quite that backwoods either. Uh, we, and we've been fortunate in our community. We've had a lot of young people come back that most have ties to the farm. Uh, some don't because we have some internet access and things that have allowed them to do other businesses or be involved other ways, either remotely or even in the community. Uh, and so that's been a positive Um but you're right. There are some of those other things. Our hospitals are getting farther and farther away for us. Uh, and some of those things are becoming more challenging. Well, Kent, uh, when you and, and your neighbors sit and talk about uh, farming and, and just the business of farming, um, you know, you're, you're also a consultant. So what are some things that are that weigh heavy on your mind? Well, I think the aging farmer is is probably the top of the list. Um, we are in an area here where we we are on the verge of a transition. A lot of guys are getting to the age where they simply cannot do it anymore. They're either trying to find people to hire or they're transitioning out. So that's a big one. But that combined with the difficulty of income on the farm, uh, you know, it's a sad day when you talk to your neighbor and he literally breaks down and cries because he doesn't know if he can make it to next year. And what that makes me think about when we talk about transitions is some of our farm community cannot afford the ownership costs of land alone or the rental costs of land alone. So what will we do when this huge amount of land is available and we have relatively few young farmers out here to take advantage of that. And, and how will we operate? You know, it's a very difficult situation. And um, a lot of those conversations are very deep heart-to-heart conversations because they're difficult ones to have. They, they are indeed. They are indeed, Kent. Sure, if I get a rep uh, one. Yeah, oh, sure, Charlie. My dad's still highly involved in our operation. He's 80. And I, you know, I work with some farmers that are, you know, in their mid 70s, you know, 70s up into 80s that are still farming highly active until they absolutely cannot get to the farm anymore. You know, I don't think they'll ever quit until physically they cannot. But I also have a lot of customers now in that 60 range that are starting to talk retirement. And I don't think that generation of farmers 
we're going to see farm forever. I mean, they're all starting to look at ways out. I was just kind of wondering if the other are seeing some of the same things in their areas, but I think we could almost see two generations quit at the same time, which uh, that's, is, that's interesting. is going to be interesting. But yeah, I a lot of my 60-year-old farmers are already talking, you know, they're looking for an exit plan right now. And I think some of it's economic. They don't want to lose any more uh, than they have. But I was just wondering if anybody else has seen that. Well, it, and it might also be that generation, that 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 boomer generation, the late boomers, you know, early Gen Xers that just saw the the previous generations and said, you know what, I'd like to reti- I'd like to retire and have a retirement and enjoy grandkids. And this is something that you know it's time for the next the next generation to take it on, and we will be the mentor instead of the mentee. Um, Eric, uh, Kent, do you guys hear, see some of those trends in your areas? I do. Yes, I see some some guys who I think they simply got worn out. You know, they they pushed as hard as they could push. And as some of our neighbors say, it's no fun anymore. It's hard. It's very difficult financially, mentally, difficult on relationships. And some of those guys who pushed that hard for that long, trying to make it work, and as Charlie said, uh, having a difficult time financially making it work, it, you know, the, the option is to say, right now I'm financially secure, let's just get out. I can, I can see that. I, I think we're seeing some of that in our community as well, of the, uh, that almost two generations retiring at the same time. I think some of that, maybe a piece of that anyway, is we went from a way of life to more of a business. And, and so people have a different approach to it. The, the difference in the, like you said, the baby boomers versus the Gen X, there's some of that transition there. Um, and one of the things I see in our community, like I said, we, we've had a lot of young people come back uh, that grew up here. And, and we do have a pretty strong bunch of young people ready to take some things on and and in some ways they're struggling right now because there just aren't quite enough acres available for them to to step in and really take something on that's big enough and they're doing some other things on the side to try to help that out and, and survive during these lean times you know dad always said if there's a will there is a way and we always figure out a way and uh sometimes it's two jobs it's working a a, a day job during the hours that's that's why we actually um, planned for a session to start at five because we wanted to, to see if we could open it up to folks that were coming home from, um, you know, after working in town and be able to catch something while they were, were having a, a meal with the family. So um, to end this on a, on a positive note, what is, what brings you hope um, to, as a farmer, uh, what is something that when you when you look at it and and you say you know what that's a job well done um, whether that's your family your your community or or the crops that you raise and and Eric you've got the screens yeah I think one of the things that's I always think of and, and come back to is is just the people in agriculture and being around the people in agriculture uh, I'm involved with some peer groups that spread across big areas and lots of different parts of the country and and for the most part, people in ag are the same, and it's always good to get good to get together and, and discuss things, and and, uh, and not only talk about the good things but the bad things too, and and lean on each other a little bit, and, 
there's just a lot of good people in agriculture and that's something that always I always appreciate about being in this business. Well, we appreciate you. Thanks. And Charlie? You know, I, I think it is about the people, you know, working with different people. And that's part of why I love the sales is I get to interact with so many different farmers. But, uh, and it's become a business, but it is still a lifestyle. I mean, and, you know, right now we've had a wonderful summer. You know, we've had rains when we needed them. And there's still nothing about, you know, driving out. And, you know, the Milo's all headed. It looks like a million bucks. We know we're setting on a great fall harvest. Um, you get into that scenario and it's kind of why you do it again. You know, it's, can I beat all the odds? Can I battle mother nature? Can I go through all of it? And can I grow something? And when you see it in the field, it still makes you want to go back and fight it all and do it again. There is always that next crop, that next calf, that, uh, that next thing just over the horizon and, and the next uh, month in the calendar. And there's always something growing and something getting harvested. And that's, that's a beautiful part of agriculture. I, I agree. And you are right. Uh, I, I, I try not to play crop favorites, but I've, I've got to tell you the time of the season that Milo is at its, at its peak beautiful part is where you've also got the sweet um, sun. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you just can't beat a, a Milo picture. It's an awful pretty picture. <laughs> and, and Kent, what brings you hope? You know, I, I appreciate both of those things. The people, um, you know, I've said this to you in the past on some interviews. I would not be here if it was not for the people who are around me. That's that's why I am where I am. You know, the the passion and the faith that farmers have to do what they do. You know, you can't. I don't think you can be a, a happy farmer without a passion for what you do. Great people, great passion. And for me, it's, it's the miracle of life that comes from a seed coming out of the ground. For me, there's nothing like the time when you, my wife teases me about my millions of little babies out there all in a perfect straight row. That just fascinates me. I just love watching that happen to see the energy from a little seed and the management that we do to it to turn it into food for people. The passion that comes behind that, that's what drives me. Yep. I got to say, you all make my job as an agricultural journalist so, so rewarding because I don't just make up, I, I, I don't make up the, the stories. I tell your stories. And so um, I always appreciate being able to call y'all up and, and, and pick your brains and ask for your expertise and also know that I get to tell the stories of really amazing people that do amazing things for the world. So thank you very much for being on the panel today. And folks, um, that, that wraps it up. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for riding along with us here on the first ever virtual sorghum and wheat you. Um, a reminder, these recordings will be posted at hpj.com suwu. Be sure to share them with your friends and neighbors who may not have been able to follow along live. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Egg Resources on August 18th, corn was up at $3.42, wheat was up at $4, Milo was up at $3.47 and soybeans were up at $8.24.
you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for our Hay Forage and Grazing Technology issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes August 31st with a story from Kayleen Scott. And look for additional content online anytime at hpj.com. Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line July 8th in its first ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to sign up to catch the second installment of Sorghum Frontiers at hpj.com sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of